0: Today I speak to Peter Lapping, a consultant psychiatrist in Wrexham and an honorary professor in Bangor University in Wales and Mysore Medical College in India. Peter grew up in Germany and experienced the country's struggle to come to terms with its past, moving beyond shame by learning the lessons that gave a greater sense of responsibility for the future. When he moved to live in Britain, He was surprised by how much this country remained in denial over many aspects of its colonial history, which came to a fore for him when he witnessed the vicious reactions to the Black Lives Matter movement from certain sectors of society. It made him question what Britain was most afraid of in widening the narrative on its past and what he could offer from his experiences in Germany that might allow the UK to become more at ease with its history. Looking into his area of expertise, he considers the imperial legacy on psychiatry, looking at the ongoing effects of eugenics, which he believes has left a legacy of racism and a sense of white superiority that still very much impacts both psychiatry, the medical establishment and society today. He ends with suggestions for intergenerational healing and hope, drawing on his experiences from Germany and what he believes is beginning to happen with the younger generation in Britain today.
1: When I still lived in Germany, I was brought up in a very rural place uh, where there wasn't much heterogeneity in the population. It was mainly white, mainly German, very few foreigners, at least in the 1970s and 80s when I grew up there. So it's changed a bit now, but I was always struck when when people told me that they had been subjected to degrees of racism or prejudice, I always thought, oh, no, I don't think I really believe that because I never saw it. It was when I came to Britain and I was myself subjected to these things and my British friends say, well, I don't really think I can believe that because they never saw it because they were white and British and had no accent. Um, I suddenly started to realize that I got these these people that I spoke to in Germany completely wrong, that I I had negated their, their experience because I just didn't see it. And it sort of started to dawn on me that, I obviously didn't see it because it didn't happen to me. And so that's when I started to think, I probably got this completely wrong.
0: Yeah, well, my my mother used to say when I used to, because I was adopted by a white family, and when I tried to explain how I felt when I, very ethnically visible growing up in a white environment, Mm. and mum said, I just can't understand it. You have to wear the shoes to feel the pinch. And I, I would get quite upset by that because I'd say, Well, you're a woman, you know what discrimination feels like as a woman. <laughs> so it's not that far a leap, is it? I mean, we don't look at ourselves very much. So if we haven't experienced it, we don't look back and think, well, that doesn't mean it it doesn't exist.
1: Yeah, that's right. Maybe being a psychiatrist, you do have to look at yourself a little bit more, but um, but I think it's still something that we don't necessarily do. And I think when you look at wider concepts of collective unconscious, we don't do it as societies either necessarily very much, which is why when I came to Britain as someone who was brought up with a very frank and very transparent view of Germany's own uh, very flawed history, I was struck by the fact how little England was doing that. And the history that you were surrounded by was always going in one direction. It was always the narrative of the benign civilizing empire. I've spent my entire life as a scientist always being skeptical when people always gave you one kind of narrative. Uh, So it just makes me suspicious (laughs) uh, because... When you're brought up in Germany, it's it's very clear that history is ambiguous. And when you work as a psychiatrist, it's very clear that medicine is very ambiguous. And so you get skeptical about histories that seem too good to be true, or any kind of story that seems too good to be true. And you're just sort of slightly skeptical about it. And you think, is that really the case? So I started to get interested in the whole subject. And then I went to India. And in India, it was very clear that the civilizing story was just absolutely crazy. When I heard Boris Johnson say that we don't want to edit our history, and actually we do nothing but edit our history because we edit all the bad things out. And we've done that all the time. Just look at the story of the Mau Mau. How all the records were destroyed, where they were, they flew, we flew planes over the Indian Ocean to throw the records out because we couldn't burn them fast enough when we left Kenya. Now that is editing history to me. And that made that what he said made me really angry because I think it it really symbolized what the prevailers of the benign narrative want to do. And the other thing was the response to the Black Lives Matters movement, because I was really struck by how vile some parts of society were, re- were responding towards that. And I thought, why is that? And it was then that it dawned on me that there was a really, really enormously strong underlying problem which is that the white majority of this country has actually invested a lot of their own self-esteem and self-confidence in being part of this benign, civilizing narrative that is so so important to them that having it challenged really causes what psychiatrists call cognitive dissonance, but you might as well call it just a psychological feeling of unease. Une- un- unease. Unease. Yeah. So people start to become naturally defensive about what they hear. At that point, they have two options. They can either defensively or aggressively deny it or they, they have to confront it. And when they confront it, it makes them even more uneasy. And then they are either left with that unease or they somehow manage to to get beyond it and to come to terms with the ambiguity of their past. And I think when they come to terms with the ambiguity of their past, they get into a state where they can reclaim that self-confidence and self-esteem by being proud of having gone through that process. And that's why I brought in the concept of Vergangenheitsbewältigung which is the german concept of
0: say that again i loved it say it again
1: vergangenheitsbewältigung
0: <laughs> that's one word is it
1: that's one word and it and it's basic it basically describes the process of coming to terms with your past mm. and it can and it can apply to a person or a or a group of people or a whole country
0: really if i googled it that's if I knew how to spell it, but luckily I've got your article. <laughs> <laughs> a, a little bit like my research into Ubuntu, which is a South African philosophy, Zulu, indigenous philosophy, that means mm-hmm. I, I exist through you. It's all about interconnectedness, which is extraordinary, because it's like the polar opposite of the colonizers' philosophy of apartheid, separateness, so yes. it could not be more different, actually. Um, But if I looked up your term, would I be able, is it a philosophy? Is it more than a word? Is it a philosophy?
1: I think you would find quite a lot on it. But most of it is probably about Germany as a society coming to terms with the Nazi past. But it it does go wider than that.
0: Well, I mean, I've got a million questions to ask you from this. By the way, I do just want to say you were saying you used the word sceptical. But I, I would rather that was that you were actually critically thinking. Is it not that we need to learn how to critically look at things rather than just take them on board passively?
1: Absolutely. Um, I was at a at a talk the other day uh, that Chester's new MP, uh, Sam Sam Dixon, did, and she said that when she. She discussed uh, education with her dad. Her dad said, "Education is has one main purpose, and that is to be to be able to identify the bollocks." And <laughs> and and I think that is that is one of the primary things that education should be able to facilitate. That you are critically, you are in you are put in a position where you can critically appraise what is being said to you. And that's particularly uh, important in this day and age where we have so much information at the drop of a hat and so much of it is just blatantly false. And
0: I I, I could really relate also to your experience of India because I've travelled a lot for my work into many different countries. Mm. And the the conversation about empire was—I hate to use a psychiatric term—it's almost schizophrenic, you know, how Britain viewed itself, and how how everyone was talking overseas about it. I mean, it—they it, were polar opposites, and there was no well, dialogue. That's what I noticed, which is why I'm interested in the truth commission.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That is that is absolutely right, and. Um, uh, we're not seen as charitable abroad as we consider ourselves.
0: <laughs> so, I'm glad you'll call it. You're now we, so you now see yourself as British.
1: I've I've always seen myself as British and German in in equal measures. Um, I have to say that the rhetoric around around the Brexit referendum has eroded some of my british identity but that's another story
0: yes but it does bring up this splitting and this idea of taking sides um i mean i feel that ever since george w bush said you're either with us or you're against us um, about iraq as a mixed race person or yourself you've had lived in two places sorry but do we have to take a side is it not about as you mentioned in your article integrating um, and being, my, my philosophy is not either or, but both and. I am both these things and more. And if I am to offer my full potential, I need to be able to claim all sides of myself. But we're becoming more and more polarised, aren't we, really? Tamara, that's, you, you are in the position where where you have two
1: sides to your identity. and But not everybody has that. I'm in the same position, but there's... But the majority population isn't in that position. And I think that's why they don't see the same kind of need. And so that's that's why they were so, or not not all, The, the, the young were very much with the Black Lives Matter movement. But so many people reacted so viciously to it, because they didn't get it. And because it caused this cognitive dissonance, they decided to to choose aggressive denial to be able to keep their own um, self-esteem intact. Now, Germans, I think, are no strangers to ambiguity because of their history. But by doing psychiatry or medicine, you have to accept that things can be ambiguous. We often don't have a clear answer in medicine. I can live with that. I don't, I don't mind that. I can live with the fact that, for example, say, Churchill might be a very ambiguous person. He may have been a good war leader for some, and he still could have been a, a really awful racist who's probably re- directly responsible for the death of millions of people in India. So both things can exist at the same time. And you can hold that ambiguity. You don't have to decide, as 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 you just said, you don't have to take sides. You don't have to say he's a hero or he's a villain.
0: We all have a bit of a villain and a hero in all of us, surely. I mean, if all those people did DNA tests, I mean, they'd find out that they did have more. I do remember in South Africa something that really struck me, a very intelligent friend of mine saying to me, it's not about black and white, it's about majority minority mindsets. And he said, even though as a black man brought up under apartheid, we were treated like dogs. These were his words. We knew this land yeah. belonged to us and we were the majority. And he was saying it to a black guy that had come from London who was try who needed a sense of home. And he said, you know, I hate to say this to you, but you actually have more in common with the whites in South Africa than you do with the blacks because you grew up in somebody else's country as a minority and and that just really screwed it all up. you know it was just we were both him and i I mean there was a grief in that, but it was also shaking it up a bit so that it, it, it... I can understand the grief, but it's
1: true isn't it yeah and and my my question has been, okay, I, I come from a position where I think that empire has done a, a vast number of very, very bad things to many people and actually benefited very few. And those it benefited were people who were already rich in Britain, but it hasn't really benefited many other people at all now that is my my bottom line however i accept that that's not the bottom line for many other people so my question is how can we get the majority opinion in britain to shift to a position where they can accept ambiguity and accept truth about what the british empire was for most parts of the world and also for most people in britain
0: i mean i phrased it somewhat differently i wondered why white people would engage the majority anyway in in a british truth and reconciliation commission what incentive is there for them to do that and and i've asked everybody that i've interviewed and alex for example said that his experience has only been positive you know as you write in your article his self-awareness has grown hugely he's made new friends he's made more connections i've heard other people say after they were after they got over that anger at having been hoodwinked it allowed them to connect with a wider world because the wider world was not looking for revenge but was actually incredibly gracious and generous
1: i was i was wondering how we can make it relevant to people today because if it isn't relevant to people today it's not going to engage and it unfortunately i don't think it's good enough to persuade people to say you need to understand why you live in a multi- multicultural society and you need to understand why there are people in your our society that actually feel that they are treated in a racist manner by many people in the society we need to understand that and I don't think, as much as I am desperate to get people to that point, I don't think that that alone is enough because it's not about an experience that many white people ever share. And so I'm thinking that it probably needs to be something else that directly engages white people that, that needs to happen to, to engage enough of them to make it a real kind of movement. So I would I was almost tempted to call it a truth and improvement committee rather than a truth and reconciliation committee. So that you you give out the message. There is something in there for you. If you can get through that uh, initial defensiveness and anger, you will come out with better self-esteem. You will come out feeling better about yourself and the country. You don't have to lie anymore. You don't have to pretend it never happened. You can just openly accept it. And that's, that, that's a real freedom to
0: that. There is a new book that I've ordered called White Psychosis. I don't know if you've ever come across this term. No. It's it's very new, this book.
1: I can guess what it means, but...
0: <laughs> Go on then. Wait, let's have a guess. Well,
1: there are views at the moment, which are very prevalent uh, in some parts of society, which are objectively clearly delusional, but because they're held by so many, they wouldn't be seen as clinically relevant delusions, but they're actually not at all true. And they fulfill quite a lot of uh, the criteria for a delusion. They are fixed uh the beliefs that are held against a lot of evidence to the contrary, and people hold these beliefs and they hold them with with a lot of strength uh which a psychiatrist would call with almost delusional intensity and uh and that that is something that i recognize from discussions with with some people and of course they would say well, you're the delusional one, but, but that's, that's by the by.
0: You're the psychiatrist, so no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm jumping from side to side. And when you ask how we engage the majority of the population in this, I'm being deliberately playful because a friend of mine who, who I hope to interview, who does a lot of um, decolonization work, says that she is deliberately playful because it's in the playfulness that people loosen up and mm-hmm. get off their defenses. So mm. when we're looking at models. Yeah, I mean, that's one you've brought that up. I, I mean, we have I haven't got a model in mind, but I do think something happens. You probably know as a psychiatrist with, with the brain. If, if something surprising happens that makes you wonder at something, there's an opening. How do you create the opening yeah. that allows
1: exactly. another point? That is the difficult question. How how would you create the opening? And the angry me just, just wants to shout out at people and say, it's so bleeding obvious, why can't you see it? And why won't you see it? But the more kind of reflective me thinks, well, let's try to find out why there's such a reluctance and then work with that because... Otherwise, we'll never get there because by shouting at people, you don't get anywhere. <laughs> so,
0: so. so let's go into your article a bit because that that does bring up some of the questions of why they might not want to go there. Yeah. White, white superiority, white supremacy that you mentioned was the basis of eugenics. And I'd really love it if you could tell us a little bit about the history. The history of e- eugenics not just in the past i've got an example from quite recently but i'll tell you about that after mm. what what, what how, how could you tell us about that what was to, to the layperson what is eugenics and what period did it start and why eugenics
1: is something that started pretty much at the same time as the enlightenment and eugenics is the idea that you can scientifically prove that some races or civilizations are more superior than others. And it started really when Europeans became very much engaged with civilizations outside of Europe. They found out that those civilizations had very different rules of engagement. And because they they also wanted to make sure that they could enslave them, and take all their resources. They, there was one element to that, which then started to say, we can scientifically say, by using pseudoscience like phrenology, where you measure people's skulls and then you say, oh, these skulls are a bit bigger or smaller, whatever. And that means that those people are inferior. So in uh, Britain, but basically in all the colonizing countries, You had a lot of scientists who uh, supported that point of view. And guess what? The outcome was always that the white people came out as the superior race. And in Britain, the Anglo-Saxons came out as the superior race. Surprise, surprise. So uh, people like Gaston, for example, uh, would, would class people into different categories from A to I, where where A were the Anglo-Saxons who were the most superior, and then it sort of increasingly went downhill from there. And that pseudoscience then became really part of a very deliberate attempt to make sure that The whole colonial process would be supported by the general population. So when the so-called Scramble for Africa started, you had a lot of public talks and journals and magazines that were meant for public consumption and not just for for scientists where this idea of eugenics and we white people are superior and need to civilize others were used to basically sell colonialization to the general public. And that happened all over Europe. And then because co- colonialization wasn't wasn't necessarily that popular back at home, because only very few people really profited from it. But by by getting people to think that they are the superior race who needed to subjugate and civilize others, they could then be persuaded to support these imperial ad, ad, adventures. And that is how the real racism that we know today actually started, because that didn't really exist in the Middle Ages. So it's it's a it's a relatively new concept. And but it's but it's become so pervasive that it's everywhere in our society and it's and it's not gone away. Aspects of it have improved, but it's really quite pervasive. And it's got consequences for other things as well, because with eugenics also came the idea of hereditary degeneration. And that was the idea that if people with mental illness or people with learning difficulties or other kind of problems, or for some people it was just poor people, if they, had children, that would be bad for the overall prognosis of your society. And that then uh, led to projects where in most European and Northern American countries, people were, for example, forcefully sterilized. They were even killed, like uh, the Nazis did in Germany with people with chronic mental illness and um, learning disabilities. And so uh, when you look at the research that's happened recently, it's very clear that in the United States in particular, people were very keen to actually su- support a sort of Nazi-style eugenics. Whereas in Britain, the scientists were had, had more mixed views. Some were supportive of eugenics, others weren't. And I think it's important to understand that whilst eugenics and the idea of white superiority became mainstream, there were always people who didn't support it. There were lots of scientists who said, it's pseudo-science, it's just not true. And I mentioned some in the, in the article. Many people didn't believe it at the time, but because it was politically uh, supported, it actually then prevailed and it became mainstream thinking for lots of people. But it was never mainstream in that everyone believed it, and there, was, there were no critical uh, other opinions about, which, which is something that makes this argument that that's what everyone thought nonsense.
0: This is a good point, because like you say, those are the untold stories, aren't they? Just like the untold story of the colonial past, you also don't ever really hear the stories of the people yeah. that stood up and said, no, I don't believe that. Um, it's not the dominant narrative, is it?
1: Absolutely. And when you when you look at how Vergangenheitsbewältigung worked in Germany, it actually required a, a revolutionary climate, which which was there in the late 1960s, where people were really not willing to accept the acquiescence and the quiet and the silence about the Nazi past any longer. And they had support, or they I don't know to what degree they persuaded the political classes or whether the political classes actually believed it anyway as well, but just didn't want to express it in such a revolutionary way. Uh, But the political classes became convinced that you really had to change education. And that's what they did. And they had enough people behind them to be able to deliver that and facilitate it. And within the media, within education within the universities, and most importantly, within the political classes, there was a conviction that you had to be transparent and frank about your past with all its ambiguities. And there's a lot of uh, positive stuff in German history, but also a lot of really bad stuff. And that it had to all come out to, to get to a better point. And you can see now that Germany has just agreed to pay Namibia 1 billion euros in reparations. Now, these are things that that not everyone has to do, but they are clearly one step further, which is now that we've kind of accepted ambiguity ourselves and we've come through that, and we have gotten pride from having done that, what is the consequence of that? And if it means paying reparations, it means paying reparations
0: very powerful and i wanted to ask you actually having grown up with that german experience you were asking me earlier what would it take to make the majority population want to engage what did that Mm. in germany what broke the silence what created that movement and revolution
1: what created the movement was that there were still lots of people alive who had managed to gain powerful positions in West Germany, people who had been really famous Nazis who then got positions in the new West Germany. And you had enough people who had enough of that and who stood up against it and said, we want to know what these people did and we don't want them to rule us again.
0: Wasn't there a youth movement as well? I remember hearing that the young said they that they said we want to know what our parents have done, and it sort of yes. came from the youth.
1: Yes, it was the it was basically the sixty eight revolution. Okay, um, but 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 it was a movement uh, which was uh, led by young people who um, who wanted to know what their parents had done and who wanted to know the truth from them, and of course, not all parents had had been Nazis. Some parents had been in prison for opposing them. So again, very interesting stories, but there's also stories of moral injury. And my own family has stories of moral injury where they knew what happened was wrong, but they struggled to find a way of doing something about it. And that causes a lot of moral injury because people feel really, really hurt and they know they they have failed but they didn't know what to do and how or how to do it
0: what happens how what how do you do how do you suggest as a psychiatrist you you deal with that moral
1: injury you have to come to terms with the ambiguity of the times and you have to accept that not everybody can be strong and put all their own self-interest to the side and risk life and torture for the betterment of society. You have to accept that not everyone has the strength of character to do that. And that that is a reality.
0: Right now, I look at England and think, <laughs> oh, it doesn't look like people are ready to make many compromises on their lifestyle for the sake of the planet. So what exactly, like you're saying, it's funny that people feel guilty when they were actually faced with far, well, the end of the planet is pretty drastic, but far more direct consequences to standing up for something.
1: i I give you one example from my own family. My grandmother uh, worked as a cleaner for the local rabbi, and when they had the Reichskristallnacht in 1938, where they destroyed all the synagogues, they knew the local people wouldn't support it. So they brought Nazis from other towns to do it, in my hometown, for example. And um, because my grandmother knew the rabbi and his family very well, and she, when she saw what happened, she really didn't know what to do, but she was so... Uh, desperate that she locked herself away in the attic for a couple of days afterwards and wouldn't speak with anybody because she, I presume because of a feeling of moral injury because she had seven children and she didn't know what to do and what she could do about it. Uh, She didn't have the courage to put herself in harm's way to protect her neighbors, but she was so distraught. That she locked herself away for a couple of days afterwards and wouldn't speak with anyone so it's that is moral injury
0: it's a very powerful story many generations on do you think you can have moral injury do you think looking at britain's colonial past people have moral injury
1: i certainly have or i was brought up with a sense of very strong guilt because I was probably the first generation who had maybe even a little bit of kind of overkill about the Nazis and what they did in their education. And so I was brought up with with a lot of guilt about uh, my country's history. That's why it was really weird when I came to Britain and I became a British citizen. Uh, I had these two passports one that I had to hit myself with and the other one that I had to pat myself on the back with. And both those weren't really true at all because it's far more ambiguous than that. But obviously, when I grew up, being German anywhere else in Europe uh, was problematic. And most people would see you negatively. That's changed now. But it's, it, it was pretty much the, the case then. I overcame that guilt, I think, by accepting that you can have self-esteem from having gone through that process. You don't have to get stuck with the guilt. That's what I'm trying to
0: say. And guilt, I thought guilt normally led to inaction. I mean, uh, Alex talked about, he said he didn't feel guilty because it wasn't his, it wasn't actually his actions. But he did feel shame that he, it took him till he was in his 50s to um, bother to look at these issues. And then there's shame if he didn't act on it. Um, Shame and guilt are different. They are different. I think
1: as a German of my generation, you probably felt both, Uh, but the guilt you can overcome by accepting ambiguity and the fact that it wasn't you, the shame you i think only overcome through action
0: i think alex is right on that actually just going back to eugenics when i was filming for the bbc in norway in 1997 we were doing a film about the rights of the sami people the indigenous people of norway and (laughs) a uh, professor from uh, oslo university i don't think he kind of realized what he was doing and he took me down into the university cellars full of S- sami skulls and they were doing dna tests on these sami skulls to try and prove that they weren't the first people in norway because they wanted their land which was oil rich is that not a continuation of eugenics i can see Absolutely, that, you, that philosophy of eugenics is in the racism that people experience every day. But this was even with DNA tests on skulls. I mean, over the land. Is it still going on?
1: Eugenics is about proving by pseudoscience that you are worth more than other people. You are more worthy. And that means that you can then take other people's stuff because they're inferior. And that is what eugenics uh, has as a lasting consequence. And those things are eugenics in today's world. But the Scandinavians were very big on eugenics and Sweden was one of the last countries to uh, stop enforced sterilizations. I think in Canada, they went on until the mid 1970s. I think Britain stopped enforced sterilizations in the 1950s.
0: It's so shocking. It's so shocking.
1: This is, this is recent history. And when you, when you look at the uh, story of the Mau Mau or the Malayan campaign, that is all recent history. There are people who are still alive who, who have actually been the victims of that. So I would say empire is not ancient history. I would also say that the the aftermath of empire is absolutely with us, and how this Victorian uh, idea of white supremacy is still shaping our world today, and it's still shaping racism today. That's that's why it's important.
0: So changing the narrative always connects with me with changing the landscape. In South Africa, when I lived there just after independence, There, were the Truth Commission was changing the narrative, but people were going into prisons and into white areas, um, and the black population were reclaiming them and changing the space. That's what I mean by the sort of playfulness as well, even if we were having raves in a prison. You know, it was playful and sometimes quite very serious. You've just changed in your article my impression of the Maudsley. This is a psychiatric hospital in South London, isn't it? South East London. And can you tell us about who Maudsley was? Because that was rather shocking to me.
1: Well, Maudsley bequests a lot of money as a foundation to uh, start off what is now called the Maudsley Hospital, which is a psychiatric hospital. And Maudsley was a great believer in eugenics and and the concept of hereditary degeneration. Some people argue that Maudsley was quite important in developing a very pessimistic outlook uh, on the prognosis of people with mental illness because he saw them as hereditary degenerative and therefore he didn't think that they would be helped or cured much he just thought that they should be kept somewhere and definitely kept away from from other people so that they wouldn't be able to have children. And so uh, in that sense, Maudsley was one of the people who was really quite fundamental in Britain to support this idea that there are people in society who are less worthy uh, of having children and less worthy citizens and most catastrophically in in Rob Poole's, and my opinion, uh, it created a very negative idea of what can be done to help people with mental illness and that was only overcome much later on this uh prognostic pessimism as as we would call it is something that Maudsley was was one of the responsible, uh, proponents of
0: bear with me with this because I'm trying to uh, trying to think it out the idea that of whether you can change and help mental illness whether it's a science and can be cured by pills or by talk therapy was a big theme in Sharon's film that I made um, for the BBC uh, well she made it because it was a video diary um, <laughs> And I say that it's really important because when it won all these awards, everybody kept ringing me up and saying, Oh, would you like to be on the mental health team of this place and that place? And I went, well, it's not me. It's Sharon. Mm. It's the patient. And they couldn't believe that somebody diagnosed with schizophrenia had made that film. But the reason I ask this is because it was a lot about racism within psychiatry, and still today, I was just looking up statistics before this interview, black people are four times more likely to be detained under the Mental Health Act than white people. I'm now going to connect that to what you wrote, which was Pearson said in 1930. He justified that law of inheritance by why one achieves and another fails to do so. And you could say when I see people in Britain, they have these unconscious biases, which is based on potentially you, this eugenics philosophy. I mean, hopefully, yes. hopefully most people think it's down to societal disadvantages by now. And perhaps they...
1: But that's not what Pearson and Maudsley believed. Pearson and Maudsley believed that it was down to genetic inferiority.
0: And do you think that's still an unconscious bias today, within psychiatry and also within Britain?
1: I think that the idea of white supremacy is still something that is subconsciously operating in many people's minds. And I think that creates a certain fear of non-white people that then leads people to use the mental health act more readily than they would compared to white people that they may consider as less threatening or that they perceive as less threatening. Why should they be fearful? If I can say it in a very non-PC manner, if you think you're superior because you're white, you consider black people as less civilized. And if you consider someone less civilized, you you are fearful of them because you consider them as potentially more wild, savage, and aggressive. So that is what I think might be going on when we look at eugenics and how it informed white superiority and how it informs people's subconscious experience of dealing with non-white patients. This is a hypothesis.
0: It's quite well known as well that that the Black population are often over-medicated in the mental health system because of their fear of the Black person, just like what happened with George Floyd. Is Is there any good news from psychiatry about how things are changing?
1: I think there is. I'm really not a defender. Of all aspects of the past of psychiatry. I should mention though that it is actually the whole of medicine and not just psychiatry. But as a as a as a psychiatrist, I I can talk about psychiatry, but medicine has the same problem. I think there's a there's a number of good news stories here. There is progress in the way that People are treated with more dignity and more respect now. I think there is progress in the much more cautious way that we use medication. I think there is progress in the way that we give people more choices about what kind of treatment they want. And even though I would never say that it's perfect now, I think it is better than it was.
0: That film I made with Sharon was nearly 25 years ago, and and reading your article made me somewhat despair, because it felt like not much had shifted. Because it came out in an article on June this year, that people from diverse ethnic minority groups have poorer access to, experience with, and outcomes from mental health services compared to whites. And there's been a call for culturally informed approaches that recognise and respond to everyday realities of people from diverse ethnic groups. That mental health care services do not consider racism, migration and complex trauma and how it affects their mental health. And there's a call for consideration of the complex interplay between society and economic circumstances and systemic racism. That's this year. And and that's what Sharon was saying 25 years ago.
1: Well, I can't
0: and wouldn't argue against that. But I know, I know. I'm definitely not uh, directing it at you. I just feel I feel my frustration. If you, though, that,
1: if you ask think, me if you ask sorry. me whether I've seen a degree of progress, I think I've seen a degree of progress. Is it to the point where I would be satisfied? No, it's not.
0: And just to link it up to this truth hmm. commission though, because that attitude that I'm hearing that from a recent report to me is the same denial. This is an effect of the denial and why we need a truth and reconciliation commission or truth and what did you call Improvement. it? Truth and <laughs> Improvement. Truth and Improvement commission, yeah. Yeah, I mean, can you link those up?
1: I think the problem isn't just psychiatry. The problem is in all of medicine and the problem is in all of society. So I could give you examples of organisations where I worked, where they have been told by their own staff that they had experiences of sexism and racism on a regular basis. But the usually white men at the top just uh, said, we don't see it. <laughs> so so it can't be true. And it was basically dismissed. Now that, that is still happening now. And I think that's that's the attitude that we
0: need to try and change. But We really do, because I mean, 25 years ago, that's Sharon, basically her story was that she said she was experiencing racism and they said, I don't see it. So you must be sad mad or bad as she decided to name her film so it went further because they actually because she was rocking the boat and there was no acknowledgement of racism just like there's no acknowledgement of our colonial past it was easier to dismiss her point of view and if she was going to push it any further give her a diagnosis over medicate her and lock her away
1: and i think what's changed now is that there have been some positive inroads into acceptance of racism by some of the Royal Colleges. So the Royal College of Psychiatry, for example, has made some very clear and unambiguous apologies about things that happened in the past. The Royal College does acknowledge that racism exists in psychiatry. Other Royal Colleges have done the same, but there is also then other publications where we're supposed to just celebrate how great British psychiatry is. And those don't, they don't marry up easily. So I think we've, we've moved a little bit forward by having some acknowledgement of some of the bad things and some of the institutional racism.
0: But parallel to that, other attempts to just celebrate without criticism. It, it's so frustrating to still be trying to get this even on the agenda. Like you say, I'm glad to hear it's moving a little bit. <laughs> but these are people's lives, these are people's lives today. But So these things are very real and it's happening too slowly in my opinion. One last question, do you believe in intergenerational trauma?
1: Yes. and. When you look at the research that's being done, um, I don't know whether you're familiar with uh, attachment theory.
0: Yes, is that Bowlby?
1: Yes, but, but the more modern version of that is basically looking at how securely attached people are. And you can see that after the war, it normally takes about three generations to get back to a normal level of attachment, of uh, prevalence of secure attachment. War and trauma, and I would suggest that, for example, the international slave trade or enslavement per se, or also the oppression from colonialization with all the violence, moral injury, will cause intergeneral issues. And there will be a time that it takes for attachment to become normalized again. But if you have insecurely attached people because their parents were either taken away because of slavery or for other reasons, then you obviously have people who are more traumatized, who live in that society with other people who may not understand their trauma because they never had it. and. Some white people get it, but many don't. And that causes difficulties within society that you can see.
0: Giving us a little bit of hope. Do you think that, just as there's intergenerational trauma, do you believe in intergenerational healing? How do we do that? Yes, I think there is
1: hope. Because a lot of the people I deal with, young, the lot of young people I deal with, they've had enough of being fed lies about the empire in the past and they don't mind ambiguity. They give me hope, and they might be, even though they may not have the same revolutionary spirit as the 68th generation in Germany, it still gives me hope that they will not stand for that kind of narrative, historical narrative. And that gives me hope that there can be healing and that there can be a different way of how we live together and how we overcome these, these differences. I think we have to have hope, particularly when I talk to young people. I've, I do have hope that it's going to change. Maybe from this anger about the lies can come a momentum, a similar effect to the momentum in 1968 in Germany, for example, that actually the political elites then want to listen and say, hey, do you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe we should really take this more seriously. And that can create a momentum that then creates a change in our education system and our media and in the way that we portray things.
0: I live in hope. And I mean, I like <laughs> to think that the Truth Commission was a hopeful thing to enter the nuance to, to not, it's not a judicial thing. It's not somebody's right and somebody's wrong. And I think that's kind of what the first reaction I get from people is they think it's that. And it's like, no, this really isn't that. This is healing in the telling of stories, being acknowledged, having your dignity restored through being acknowledged um, and then dialoguing and then acts of repair. Any views on, the tru- on a British Truth Commission? I think
1: that the situation in South Africa is different to the situation in Britain because it was more immediate and even though some of the perpetrators of the empire may just still be around in their 80s or 90s, it's still a bit further removed. Do
0: you think that, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because Surely it should make everybody feel a bit safer?
1: <laughs> yes, but it makes it less immediate. So there, there can be the feeling that it's less relevant. So I think we... We need to try and make a British commission like that relevant to to people somehow, and I think it can create healing, because the first step is that we get to a different view of what actually happened. We need to enlarge the narrative. And we need to accept that that enlarged narrative is not a threat to anybody, but that it's the starting point of ambiguity that needs to be worked through, but that will take us all to a place where we are much more free because we can freely talk about our past without having to feel shame or guilt.
0: And, and it's amazing coming from you because you've grown up in Germany and you've lived through that process.
1: Yes, and it's possible because the, the new generation in Germany has has managed that. I think they don't feel guilty or ashamed for being German, but they are very aware of the history and they don't mind talking about the really negative aspects of it. They can talk about it without shame, but with with an understanding that it gives you responsibility
0: for the future. Mm, A very good point. So is it just the media being the media that I've heard some reports recently that in Germany there's a bit of a backlash to having being made to feel guilty?
1: no i don't think that's that's a backlash there's a backlash against some of the excesses of globalization that we see everywhere with the emergence of right-wing populist groups but i think that in britain in my opinion this is we have a governing party that has so much taken on right-wing populism that we don't need right-wing populists.
0: As somebody, again, that knows a lot about the history of this, when you see the new Prime Minister of Italy, when you see the rhetoric in Britain, when you see the move to the right, do you think this is a result of not knowing our history? When you look at genocide studies and you look at
1: how genocide is the end product of a path that starts off by separating one group from the main society by the way that we talk about that group, by the way that we then uh, legally try to strip that group of rights. And I'm just thinking of the new bill that's just been been enacted now that allows the government to strip people who are dual uh, nationals of their British nationality without even having to let them know about it if if letting them know isn't practical. Those are legal ways. When you look at the steps that societies take towards genocide, then some countries in Europe are not doing particularly well at the moment. And that is something that scares me. And I think when we look at Holocaust Day, we shouldn't be celebrating us having liberated uh, concentration camps. We should be saying this could happen anywhere, and we should teach our kids the steps that lead to genocide. I think the way we do it in Britain is that we just pat ourselves on the shoulder and say, well, it won't happen here anyway, because we've always been on the right side of history, when we clearly weren't and clearly it could happen anywhere. That is something that I think is should be part of education, that we don't say, oh, people were poor and that's why they voted the Nazis in. No, we should be teaching what actually happens on the steps to genocide so that we can watch it and we can look at our own society and say, how far are we, what do we need to do so that we don't get to step six or to step seven what do we need to do to prevent it and we only we're only able to do that if we actually know what the steps are we're not aware
0: were you taught that in germany were you taught the steps in germany
1: only up to a point we were taught much more about the ideology of fascism and the way that it presents with aggression towards minorities and what that can lead up to yes we were taught that it's scary sorry <laughs> I, I don't want to i don't want to end on a depressive note because i'm actually relatively hopeful but
0: <laughs> but but it is scary yes labels seem to be one thing language seem to be very yeah. Yes. Dehumanising language.
1: That's the preparatory steps.
0: And also those labels, and I've been to talks recently about ADHD, and some people want that label and it is quite helpful because then it explains quite a lot and leads to a process. Other people find the label means that people then don't see them beyond the label. As a
1: doctor, I, I call it a diagnosis. Right. I do accept that some people perceive their... Diagnosis as a label. And I also accept that society sometimes labels people with a certain diagnosis. Okay. The diagnosis is something that is a reality. And I think we need to make sure that we fight the labeling that happens in society of people with certain diagnoses. And we need to make sure. That we help them in a way that they don't have to see the diagnosis as a label, but they actually see it as something something positive that allows them to access help when they want it and they need it, because that is what a diagnosis also does. But but it's a it's a whole really quite interesting discussion about whether diagnoses are real or whether they are constructs that we use in medicine in order to make communication easier
0: yeah i was very disturbed by the label migrant becoming common i don't know why because refugee is another label but it has very different connotations and we've been talking about labels and how that can dehumanize there's something about this migrant term that makes me feel it's a, it's them somehow
1: i agree um And when
0: they're British, they're expats. Exactly, exactly. Well, both my fathers, my adopted one and my birth father, were both migrants. One was just an officer of the empire because Britain was very poor at that point and they were looking for economic opportunity and one was deemed a migrant. I'm
1: a migrant. I'm a migrant. You're a migrant. But I didn't come to economically better myself. I wouldn't have come from right. Germany if you to do that.
0: <laughs> 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 no. <laughs> no. And and Germany was anyway, that's a whole nother discussion. But the reparations, which potentially some people say led to World War II because it was so punishing after World War One that Germany had to pay. I mean, look at the success of Germany economically coming from absolute poverty and having debts and all that, perhaps that same journey of success is part of your same journey of self-realization, ambiguity, acceptance, you know, something's going on in Germany. Something
1: has worked, and I'm not saying it's perfect at all. So don't don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it worked fantastically in all aspects, but I think something has worked that, that allowed people to accept, but also move on. And, and I wish that we could do that here, because I think it, it gives you a higher degree of freedom. And that's the improvement. Hopefully the improvement is twofold. The end of racism and a higher degree of freedom. For everybody. Yes.
0: And maybe connection.
1: Yeah. That's a positive note.
0: Well, there we are. (laughs) There we are. We finished on a positive note. Great. We should
1: leave it there. And if it weren't controversial, we wouldn't be doing it because it wouldn't be
0: necessary. True, true, true. Well, thank you because I'm going away thinking a lot about ambiguity and also playfulness Ah. and improvement. These are key concepts. And I really appreciate you looking at in depth, as you do in your article, about how to deal with bringing people in, in a way that their identity can cope with.
1: I think we need to be realistic and think about the hurdles that some people might have to overcome in order to buy into this.
0: I need I need to think carefully about that because, because of Britain being in such denial, I have kind of learned to be a bit provocative and I'm trying to unlearn that because I've poked because, you know, I've been living between these two black and white worlds and uh, the, the denial in the white world meant that I poked. Yeah. But I'm trying to change. It doesn't but work. someone
1: has to poke because without poking, there is no media response because you can only get media response by poking or throwing statues into the river. Otherwise, if you just have a reasonable argument, no one bothers to report it. So I think the poking is needed to allow the discussion because of the way that our media functions.
0: Then you get Trump's poking as well. And... Sure, yeah, exactly. But one idea I do have thinking of playfulness, and I'll leave you with that, is a pub quiz, because it's such an English thing to do. <laughs> um, a pub quiz, but they don't know yet that it's going to be on colonialism Okay, and what they know hmm. and don't know. But my friends were like, no, 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 Tam, that's quite dangerous because <laughs> if people end up feeling really shocked at what they don't know, you know, um, because some of the TikToks have asked people, do you know what the Mao Mau was? Do you know what the Zong massacre was? Mm. Have you heard of Amritsa? And, it, and everybody's like, no. And, and I th- but I don't want them to then feel shame because then we don't get anywhere. And that's why I think what you've said is really important.
1: Do you know who one of the main supporters of uh, General Dyer was, who was responsible for the Amritsar massacre? Charles Dickens.
0: Some of these (laughs) are national heroes, aren't they?
1: But again, I think we have to accept that you can write wonderful books looking at uh, poverty at home, but you can still be a terrible racist. Yeah. Yeah. That is the reality of life and and that doesn't make his books any worse but i think we just need to allow ourselves to see the whole man and not just the the bits we like yes and we can still read his books i'm not saying we should stop reading his books but i think we have to acknowledge that that he wasn't a social reformer or parts of him were a social reformer but parts of him were just incredibly racist and he didn't want to have social reform in the colonies only at home for the whites that's the ambiguity that i was talking about
0: the only thing with ambiguity i experience it slightly like free falling there's nowhere to land it's a moving thing because it's ambiguous it's it's not like a position
1: no you no you no, you do land because because you do land when you accept that ambiguity isn't bad that is that is when you land and become truly free, because you can then just look at things and accept the ambiguity, and it doesn't frighten you anymore
0: Wow, okay, I like that actually <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you no know, no no i really I really like that, so I'll work on that
1: well very nice meeting you and i i hope i'll, I'll, I'll see you again and we we'll stay in touch and uh, yes. and hopefully move this whole thing forward somehow
0: thank you to all our contributors if you're enjoying this series please follow and share and importantly if you support the call for a british truth and reconciliation commission on colonialism please sign the petition The link is below the series intro, thank you.